is The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. I'm your host, Paul Parisi. And I'm Jacob Young. On The Edge of Innovation, we talk about the intersection between technology and business, what's going on in technology, and what's possible for business. Welcome to The Edge of Innovation. We're here today with Alexander Lowry. But now, that must have been a huge crisis because you lost a job in the economy. Well, when did you lose the job? So we're talking the year 2000. Oh, okay, 2000. All right. Definitely a crisis of confidence. Right, right, okay. As men, I think the general stereotype, and I believe it, is that our identity is, if not fully, at least partially wrapped up in our job and who right. we are and how well we do it. So for me, this was a gut check time. Am I doing the right thing? Am I heading in the right direction? So what came back? What came back was a little bit of help realizing I was not the only one. But okay. A lot of people losing their jobs at right. that point because the internet bubble was bursting. And there's probably also an assessment of this is a chance to, to step back and take stock. Okay. And that was probably when I first came up with the idea that I can use some help and let's talk to some other people. Cool. And some of my dad's friends who were in business were very useful for me to sit down uh-huh. and talk with and learn from and sort of realize that I don't have to do all this life stuff on my own. Can you recall like a an aha moment during any of those talks? It's like... Well, yeah, I can remember one. So I wouldn't say about two weeks after I was laid off, uh-huh. I was at a Haverford College mixer slash networking event. And one of the alumni, his wife, they were an older couple, was there, and she was a recruiter at Goldman Sachs. Uh-huh. So I went up and talked to her. We had a really good conversation. She goes, you would be a great fit for our position. I thought, yes, I would. <laughs> and she started asking about my career history. And I explained, well, I was at my first company for a year, and I left to join this internet consulting yep. company, and then they've just laid off all the young analysts. She said, oh, I can't hire you. I thought, why? She said, well, you're a job hopper. I said, I don't think I am. I've got a very good story. She goes, it doesn't matter. The perception is reality, and that's what you look like on paper. So from my point of view, that was a a gut check in my career thinking, I don't ever want that again. Interesting. And I was determined at my next job to find a great place where I could grow and develop. thought, I need to be there at least three years. Okay. We'll talk more about it. Fast forward. It was 12 years at the next job. Really? Okay. It's never an issue again. Yeah. So... So where did you go? So I actually ended up realizing I loved the consulting and I wanted to stay in that, but I wanted to be more of an established company. I loved the startup vibe. I loved the opportunity behind uh-huh. it in the sense that you could grow faster in your career because you're not in a typical pyramid structure. You go to Accenture is a good example where they have this very clear pyramid and they bring in tons of young people every year. And you move up, and not that you can't have a fast career trajectory, but it's established. It's right. Set. And I thought I would like to join a company that somehow mixes the established firm company that is very secure with a startup. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually found one. Okay. So PA Consulting Group, headquartered out of the UK, it started during World War II. It was personal administration consulting. The men went off to fight in the war. The women came to work in the factories. They integrated the women into the factories. Okay. The men came back after the war. They integrated the men back to the factories. Interesting. Personal okay. administration. And breathing it down to PA so they basically expanded to do every other type of consulting. At one point, they were the second biggest in the world. They had then shrunk a lot. Mm-hmm. But they were very big in Europe. Financial Times called them McKinsey of Europe. Mm-hmm. Huge name, well-recognized. But they were just starting to get a footprint in the U.S. Okay. So for me, this was the perfect situation. They had, I think, 10, 20 people All right. in the U.S. I was able to join the New York office at a very critical moment where it was like a startup mode. 
for an established company. Cool. All right. Now, you, you're in New York still. Still in New York. So then what happened next? I worked for them in New York for about three years. Okay. And at that point, there was an opportunity they presented me with. They said, would you like to go over to headquarters in London? Now, I will also be very clear. One of the reasons I chose this company was also Machiavelli. Uh-huh. I did not study abroad in college. I had a great time. I was sitting with professors in their homes junior and senior year, 10 people in their living room with very smart people. Really, uh-huh. I didn't want to go abroad. But I did now. I, did, I, sure. I thought I'd the idea of living somewhere else. Again, I said New York, in my mind, was a normal city. Abnormal, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But right. for me, what are the other standards like that? London, in my mind, maybe Paris, maybe Hong yeah. Kong, uh-huh. cities. Can I get to one of those? So joining this company headquartered in London was always in the back of my mind of that'll be a benefit. My assumption was you can always get a transfer to headquarters. Take J.P. Morgan, uh-huh. for example. If you join them in the London office, the Hong Kong office, New York is the show. Uh-huh. If you're really good, you will eventually get an opportunity to move. I see. And I became the first American who got the opportunity to go to the London headquarters for this firm. Wow. Really? I was excited about That's that. very cool. And so you moved to London. Moved to London. The intent was for what they call secondment. So two years with the third-year option. Uh-huh. That was the deal. And I got over there and got established. And it was a personal and professional success. So I was enjoying traveling every other week. It's cheap like Capital of Europe right out of London. Uh-huh. Every other weekend, you spend a couple hours, and you're in a different country, different culture, different language, everything else. Just wonderful experience. Okay. And I decided I wanted to stay even longer. So after three years, they put me on the local citizenship track. They kept the papers there. I was able to stay long enough to get my passport and the citizenship. So I've got that dual standard now. I stayed wow. Years. Okay. So, and then did you leave there? They brought me back to New York. Okay. I was missing my friends and family. I felt like I was living a good life over there, but wasn't really established in the sense of, I love the Brits, but they are a careful, close community. Mm-hmm. And Sort of like New England, but we'll talk about that later. Okay, that's good. I need advice. <laughs> yeah. And to break into the circles, you almost had to be dating someone local. I see. You need someone to get you in. Uh-huh. You need a reference to get a bank account open. It's just the way the society works there. And from my point of view, I was sort of one foot on this side of the pond, one foot on that side, coming back regularly, seeing friends and family. And I got to thinking, Am I going to live here forever or am I going to go home? Because mm-hmm. if I'm going home to meet someone to settle down and start my life, I'm kind of way behind here. Uh-huh. If I'm going to do it here, I better just go all in. So I, I decided I needed to go back home. Okay. So they brought me back to New York. And at that point, I was thinking, you know, this is really fun, but I wonder, I've never scratched that finance itch. Okay. We've been talking about Wall Street since back in the Haverford days. Yeah. I think I'd like to do that. And the traditional way that someone makes a massive career change like that is business school. Uh-huh. That's the way most people tend to do it. For some reason, it's so common now to get a two-year traditional MBA, you do a summer internship in between, and you switch, that employers never question it. If you switch most jobs, they say, you need a story. You need to be able to explain yeah. to someone why. It doesn't need to be long. It just needs uh-huh. to be clear and believable. You just say business school, and was like, oh, yeah, okay. So I thought, why don't I use the MBA to switch? And I ended up going to Wharton to get the MBA, and I also wanted that school partly specifically because it is a finance name. Uh-huh. It resonates. Everyone hears Wharton. They're like, oh, yeah, finance, Wall Street. It makes total right. sense. Uh-huh. And that was how I switched over to J.P. Morgan. Wow. Okay, so you went to J.P. Morgan. What did you do there? What was going to be your job? Joined at a fascinating time. They hired me, which makes total sense, partly because of my consulting background and skill set. Sure. And there was what they call the London Whale Scandal. Jamie Dimon famously called it a tempest in a teapot. Okay. Actually ended up being a really big deal. And what they realized was that they call one of the companies that's too big to fail. It's just too big to manage. Uh-huh. Even Jamie Dimon, the best banker in probably the history of banking, must struggle with it because you have five Fortune 500 companies in one. 
absolutely massive. They're all best at what they do. And what the company realized with that London Whale scandal was they actually did not have a true handle on what was going on in the business. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, Jamie Dimon sitting 50 stories up in the sky does not know anything about what's going on down below. Information's not getting fed up. Mm -hmm. They built a brand new unit called Oversight and Control, which was supposed to sit on top of audit, finance, legal, compliance, everything to get one source of truth and also to be a single point of contact with the regulators. And the regulators would say either coming into London office and then later coming to New York office finding the same problem. Or coming to the investment bank and then finding the same problem the commercial bank. And the business was going, how do we get our own house in order? How do mm-hmm. we get this under control? So they needed that unit established. And I came in and I helped asset management get it underway and that's how I started out. Okay. Was that your last job before this? It was not. So okay. after I'd been in that role a year, year and a half, the business was getting sorted out, things were under control. We had unearthed a lot of problems, which mm-hmm. we expected to, and now we had this long list to solve. So then in the U.S. private bank, you can think about it as uh, very wealthy clients, affluent individuals, mm-hmm. they needed to solve a lot of their problems. So the, the COO over there said, hey, I need a deputy to come over here. All that stuff you figured out, come over here and solve. I see. So I was working in the U.S. private bank, deputy COO, which a role I absolutely loved and enjoyed. And another really interesting happened. J.P. Morgan always has fascinating stuff going on. They decided to accelerate the recovery for Detroit. Remember, this was when mm-hmm. Detroit was going through bankruptcy, big problems. J.P. Morgan committed $100 million over five years to help accelerate that, which was a huge opportunity. Now, at that point, our private foundation was already one of the, say, 25th biggest in the country, mm-hmm. about $240 million a year. But that system had been set up a long time ago, sort of being held together with Band-Aids. You're going to add another $100 million on top of that, it would have fallen apart. So I was brought over to be deputy CEO there and help solidify that and get it underway. And unbeknownst to me, I did not necessarily know at the time exactly why that was happening, but there was a clear plan. That role helped set the foundation for where I am now, and I don't want to jump ahead okay. too much, but that got me one foot in the nonprofit world already, I see. which led to the academic role now. Interesting. Okay. So was was there another job? No, no. So that was four and a half years at J.P. Morgan. Okay. So four and a half years at J.P. Morgan, and that brings us to what? Then we came here to Gordon College. So you said you were never interested in academia. You were never interested in this. Let's go down this road a little bit. If Gordon hadn't happened, where would you be? I think we would have ended up in Colorado. So the other thing going on at this time was we've talked a lot about professional. There was Mm -hmm. personal life. And my personal life was changing. We talked about being in London and felt like I hadn't settled down into the roots. As I got back, that was what took up a lot more importance in my life. And I'm fortunate now, just over two years, married to the amazing Rebecca. And she was a blessing in my life. And as Rebecca and I were recording and getting ready to get married and we're engaged, she said to me one day, she said, I don't think you working 100 hours a week at a bank is really going to be good for us. Yep, good. Good for her. And I thought, yeah, she's a great challenge for me in very healthy ways. And I said, good point, darling. So we began thinking about what that could look like and feel like. And we thought, well, you know, we want to settle down. We want to have a family. We'd like to have a house, maybe take a fence, the dog, uh-huh. whatever it is. And her brother's out in Colorado. And we know that it's just an amazing and beautiful place. Sure. Quality life. It's so popular, all the companies are either relocating or building offices there. And we thought that's where we would be going as well. Mm -hmm. So I began looking for opportunities out there and found some really good ones. But about that same time, this opportunity at Gordon College came up. Now, I'll be very clear. I'd never heard of Gordon before. Sure. It is a fantastic liberal arts school, but it wasn't on my radar. And I'm a New York fan. I wasn't really coming to Boston. Right, area, right. So exactly. Well, exactly. It's an outlier at best, for, for you especially. Right. But it wasn't just an outlier of a school. In other words, you know, this small school north of Boston, it was in academia. So you're sort of like, oh, my gosh, I'm in finance. It's like going from being a doctor to, you know, something completely different. <laughs> um, so how did that even get broached? Because it's sort of like maybe you can't even teach. Well, 
I think I can, and we'll find out soon. Okay. That's a good point. So it's not as big of a leap when I explain it as you'll think. Okay. So I've actually done a lot of teaching in my past, and that's only a part of my job. Okay, leading, good. Leading it is more, but so I've done a TA to Wharton and at Haverford and did a lot of running of presentations as part of consulting a lot of training. Okay. So I've got all the teaching aspect in my background, but it was less about me being brought over to teach. It was more of there's this unique program that was an exact fit, but... Let me sort of finish off the story for yeah, please. just a moment ago. So Gordon came and actually found me. Mm-hmm. I didn't find them. It was through some friends, again, people on my board who said, hey, I know you're looking in Colorado for these sorts of finance opportunities. This is not what you're thinking about, but you would be a great fit for this role. Okay. And in my mind, one of the fascinating tests that doesn't have to hold is, do you find the job or does the job find you? Which I always find a little more fascinating. And my wife and I looked at it, and again, wrong geographic direction, wrong sports teams, our family is other parts of the country, so it wasn't what we were looking for. But when we started digging into it, I realized, in many ways, this is a perfect fit for me. Does your organization need help with your IT? Savior Labs is a Boston IT firm that cares for your business and team. We solve problems so you can focus on what you do best. Talk to us today about your biggest technology problems. Just follow the link in the show notes and enter the code EDGE for more information. So I probably need to describe the program for just a minute. Okay, yeah, let's go ahead. So the Master of Science in Financial Analysis, again, which is called Master's in Finance, rolls off the tongue a little more easily. This is designed to be a one-year program for people to get a fast track to a great career in finance. And I will contextualize it against the traditional MBA, just because that's the easiest thing to wrap our head around. When you go to an MBA, like I go to Wharton, I went to Wharton to study finance, but every MBA program is generally set up the first year you do a little bit about everything. They want to make sure you're a generalist with some knowledge about strategy, operations, marketing, finance, accounting, everything under the sun. You do your summer internship where you're testing out, do you really want to specialize in the field you think you do? And you come back and you go, yeah, that's great. And you send your second year doing deep dive, marketing, finance, whatever it is. So I went to Wharton knowing I want to be in finance. I've already done all the general stuff in consulting, but it was still a great brand for me to have. Compare that to the program that we offer. The assumption for us is you know you want to be in finance, right? So therefore, you don't need that first year of general knowledge. You're just going to specialize. So therefore, it's half of the opportunity cost in terms of time, and that's expensive because it's lost salary. Right. Obviously, there's a, a program component cost to it. Average MBA is 140000 and the top schools like Morton get closer to two hundred. Right? Okay. We, we charge thirty because we don't want a big debt loads for our students. Sure. So for me, it was exciting to realize, okay, we're going to build a program from scratch in finance, my field of mm-hmm. enjoyment and expertise. All of my project management background, which we might talk to, is great for setting that up. I love being out there and engaging with students and coaching and developing them, teaching in some of the classes will be exciting. So there were just a lot of reasons we felt like there was a unique opportunity. Another part of it is you're talking a small school. We're not talking Ohio State. Mm-hmm. You're not talking big established brands. You're building something which is an entrepreneurial. I know right. we'll get to that. Another part of it is at a smaller institution, you don't have the same, I'm going to call it rules, rigmarole, structure. You have some of that at Gordon, but it's not like at a place like Ohio State where you have to be locked down. Mm-hmm. Right, class. right. Therefore, realizing there's probably so much value I can add in other ways to the school. So that was the professional part. The personal part, my wife and I got up here and visited. This is a beautiful part of the country. Mm-hmm. I also know I'm going to love three seasons. We really got here and experienced winter. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that one as much. justified <laughs> by the other three. Don't tell well. me. But we were excited about that. We just had our first child, and we just bought a house. And we get to settle down and enjoy this wonderful lifestyle with a better work-life balance in academia. Okay. So all of that is to us a big package, which is what made it very attractive. All right. So you have, I guess, it's almost like a 180-degree turn. Dramatic. Yeah, dramatic turn. Um, People actually challenge and say, usually people go the other way. Yeah, exactly. So now you have a new job 
and you're here in New England in a new world in many more ways than one. And for those of you who aren't in New England, New England is a interesting place. You're not considered somebody who, how would you put it? You're newcomer if you've been in town for 25 years, okay? And after 25 years, they sort of accept that you're going to be there and then you just automatically become a, a regular, you know, a townie, if you will, depending on the town you live in. But it's really amazing. My wife was born and, and raised here, so she's a New Englander. But, you know, for me, it was, I get some of that by association. But now that I've been here over 30 years, it's, it's inconsequential. The resistance, or resistance is futile, I guess I should say. So you're here, and how you've been here since January. Well, we arrived, I started in September, moved up October. Okay, all right. So not long at all. Less than a year. Yeah. And so you need to go out, and you're going to sell vacuum cleaners door to door. And you've got to sell 30 vacuum cleaners this year for $30,000 a piece. Is that right? Yeah, and so you, you've started a new business, effectively. So let's get into a sense. So this sounds like Gordon is being very entrepreneurial with the department that, you know, is there. This finance department or this role is saying, okay, let's make a go of it. And you've got support from Gordon to do that, but you ultimately have to make put the people in the seats. Right. So you're on a process of that as you've been sort of peeling this onion, I guess. What are your hopes, dreams, concerns, plans? How are you going to – you have a magic wand? Well, that's interesting because at the moment people ask me, how are, how are you doing it all? How are you doing yep. physically getting all of this done? So well, at the moment, it's just me, myself, my dog, and I don't have my dog yet. Okay. So a lot of it's just the, the husband, the manpower. My wife would tell you I don't sleep enough. I'm working many days a week, but all of this is great and exciting. A big part of it is building the vision, the strategy, mm-hmm. the execution, the marketing that gets people excited. So a big part of the program for us is just sharing, raising that awareness that if you are going to a great school mm-hmm. and you are in Podunk, wherever, no one will know because the big employers cannot come to you at a small school because you don't have enough people to justify their time. Sure, okay. So part of the outreach is we have this great school. It's a program custom-built for you, and it's right outside the financial hub of Boston. When we talk finance jobs, Wall Street is of course, what everyone thinks about. That is number one. Number two is a close between San Francisco and Boston. Okay. Lots of big companies either headquartered or large presence in Boston. It's on our doorstep where we have all the connections. And we feel like for some students, it's saying, you come to our program, you get this great credential that makes you stand out. So when I got an analyst role at J.P. Morgan, I was feeling, I would have a stack of resumes the size of my hand. I don't know how many hundreds I would mm-hmm. have. How do I take that to a small pile that I might actually look at? Right. Part of that would be if I see someone who has a differentiator, like some master's education, that shows me they actually care about it and they're dedicated to it. You combine that to try to stand out in the market, again, access to the companies in your local back door with okay. strong connections. We feel like that's a very viable opportunity for a lot of people. When you think about this is probably the first time in the last eight years that the businesses expect to hire one to two percent less college grads than they did the Right. Okay. So I can imagine, let me put this to you. So you have people who, if you could get to them at that inflection point where they're thinking, what do I do next? Or they've said, gee, I got to do something with finance. If you could be at the Starbucks when they just, you know, just spit that out of their mouth and said, well, I got to find a good finance program. You'd like to be able to sit down next to them and say, what about considering this? How are you doing that? I mean, because it sounds like, you know, you've built this in your own life, this mentor system, this personal board. They may may or may not have that. But it seems like you're taking a much more holistic approach that I think that maybe, you know, five years from now, you want to look back and you have gotten a bunch of people that have personal boards and are advising them to go into this. And they can choose the smaller school to do this. 
and be well on their way to a good career. So how are you thinking about that sort of instantiation or uh, the realization of that, I guess, is what I want to say. So in terms of how you would take that and execute it for a program like this, to me, it's stages. Right? Mm-hmm. I think project management terms. I mean, you cannot do it all at once. You've got time, cost, and qualities. You're trying mm-hmm. to balance, and how do you want to balance that? You want right. to average all of them or good on some of them? And what I would rather do is make sure we're building a very strong quality program and building it with a small cohort initially. So it's how do you build school connections, mm-hmm. key schools, and leverage it out from there while you're perfecting your messaging and thinking about different cohorts and how do you appeal to the locals for the part-time program right. build connections with businesses that not only will bring in students as interns or hire them, but also will want to send it to their employees and say, hey, you should be working. That's a good idea. Take as a benefit. Okay. Um, at the same time, while going out to undergrads and connecting with them or looking at people that are maybe thinking about an MBA, mm-hmm. and you could go to them and make the pitch of, well, instead of a two years and much higher cost, mm-hmm. it will fit your needs because you can do it this way. So part of it is just the bandwidth of, of building all of that marketing capacity and taking it to market. So I think there's some things that bear sort of digging into a little bit. So one of your market segments, if you will, is for the undergrads to talk to them. Hey, what are you doing next? This is an option. We'd love to talk to you and educate you through that and help you make the best decision for yourself. And, and is that the nature of it? Because, you know, you go to a website and it's so impersonal and you, you see a brochure and it's so impersonal. Are you trying to break that personal barrier? Are you like saying, hey, call me, email me. Let's talk about your career. Great question. So I think about it as how do I get change agents, right? How do I yeah. get advocates for the program? And undergrads are a great way to think about it because they are all at an inflection point in the graduate. Whether they go to grad school mm-hmm. or get a job, they're going to do something or, or take up time to study abroad. They have to make a decision about something. And you want to, just as you said, if you can find the right people at the right time with the right information, mm-hmm. it's magic. So senior year, for example, is like the right time for people to be saying, oh, you know what? Uh, maybe instead of grad school, I'll go work for a little while. Sure. First, or I will consider my other options. People are wrestling with those decisions. And they're often wrestling with their advisors. You asked me back at Hanford, well, what were your advisors mm-hmm. saying? What were your faculty members saying? If you can make connections with people at the right schools, and it's no different from any other business, right? Who are going to be able to people to influence for you? There's okay. only so much of your own time that you can go out and, and bang on door to door to sell the vacuum cleaners. But you know, think about it in social media today. If you could have some someone on who's a LinkedIn influencer mm-hmm. who's got a huge Twitter network, Someone like that, imagine on your podcast. If you got someone who's incredibly famous, like Richard Branson sat on sure. today, and he would sell your podcast to right. else just by his nature being associated right. with it. In some ways, if you can do that for us, if you could get some of the right schools around or some of the influential faculty mm-hmm. members, hopefully we'll help sell the program. Okay, so now that's definitely applicable to the undergrads, but then there's also this other market opportunity, which are professionals. Right. And how do you think you can reach out to them? I mean, I think you know, like you've said, sort of going to local companies, I think that's a brilliant idea is to go where they are. But is there any magic grand plan there? Part of it is we think about it in different ways. So you could use maybe the geofencing term as a way to mm-hmm. think about it. If you were tracking the people, people who are local to that area okay. who live or work there. Yep. Uh, so, for example, I had one person who said, oh, two years ago I had to fight traffic to go to B.C. to get there when your master's program. I see. I would have much rather not have fought the traffic and just done it locally. Right. So sharing that message and getting that out there is a very smart thing to do. But, of course, you've got to figure out the right channels. Like for any business, how do you communicate what you need to communicate? Right. Do, you, do you go on podcasts? Do you focus on buying ads on Facebook? Right. Are you going to conferences and getting speaking slots? So I've gone to some of the North Shore Chamber breakfasts. How yep. do you connect with the influencers and make that happen? Sure. You could wear sandwich boards and just walk up and down streets. That could be the most that, that, the summer at the There you go. There you go. Definitely a challenge. I think that's why I sort of leapt to the you're an entrepreneur because you have an idea. You have some wind at your back with the institution, but you really have an idea 
and some process, converting that into a business or a success is really a, a, a huge step to make that happen. So we've been talking with Alexander Lowry of Gordon College. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your time today, Paul. All right. Well, thank you for coming in. The Edge of Innovation is brought to you in partnership with Savior Labs. Savior Labs exists to help businesses mature and strategize for the future. Learn more about Savior Labs at SaviorLabs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. For the show notes and more information about Paul, please visit paulparisi.com. The Edge of Innovation is produced by Jacob Young in conjunction with copious amounts of coffee. Music on today's episode was from bensound.com. Paul can be found on Twitter at pdparisi and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash pdparisi. This episode, like all our episodes, is transcribed and available at paulparisi.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.